0: This is Reformation Sunday for uh, many Protestants, not as many as once uh, there were. This was usually a a day that was quite well celebrated, but not much anymore, Uh, no doubt due to a couple of reasons. One is that um, uh, it seems to be maybe a way to remind that the churches are divided. And we live in an ecumenical age. And secondly, of course, is that people simply forget their history. But the text today is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Martin Luther. Most people today, when they hear the word Martin Luther, they think of Martin Luther King But Martin Luther, the man that Martin Luther King was named after, was a 16th century Augustinian monk who now is famous in history for having been the so-called author of the Reformation, a sweeping religious movement that changed Europe and changed the world. But I would like to remind you that Martin Luther was not really the first reformer at all. The church of Rome had grown very, very rich and very powerful through the Middle Ages. It was troubling to many princes It was troubling to many priests, and it was troubling to many monks who lived in monasteries. And there had been a number of attempts through those centuries to reform the church, to bring it back to that company that was to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in, if you will, simplicity, And through the proclamation of the gospel, no one in the second or third or even the fourth century dreamed that uh, the bishop of Rome would have more power than any king in Europe and, in fact, would crown kings and queens. It was just unimaginable. It was unimaginable, for instance, that there would be so much wealth and riches that would accrue. Uh, to the papacy. In the uh, early years of the Middle Ages, or I should say in the Middle Ages, you've heard of the name of Francis of Assisi. He lived in the 12th century. There is a story that you've heard told probably where St. Francis went to Rome and by the time he had gone to Rome... He had gained some popularity in his attempts at reforms to reform the church. But as the story is, goes, and it may be apocryphal, but I'll tell it anyway. As the story goes, it is said that the current pope took him around to see the splendor of the buildings and the magnificence of the artwork. And uh, the Pope was reported to have said to him, "Uh, Francis, no longer does the church have to say silver and gold have I none. To which St. Francis is reputed to have responded, and yes, no longer can the church say either, rise up and walk. In other words, St. Francis was a person who represented simplicity, and he started a movement of, of monks called friars who went about preaching the gospel and, in particular, trying to reach the poor. That was an attempt at a reform. Later, about two centuries later, a professor at the University of Oxford by the name of John Wycliffe saw that there needed to be reform in theology. Not only was the church not ministering to the whole of society the way it should, but there had grown up a very Byzantine, complex theological system that needed to be not only simplified, but clarified. And to do so, John Wycliffe wanted to translate the Bible into the common tongue. And he did so. He was really the first to try to push to get the Bible translated into the language of the people so that they could read it. He also instituted some other doctrinal reforms, but he was much hated for this. He was protected, but it is interesting that later on, uh, his enemies dug up his bones and burned them as a heretic. Now, maybe you've not heard of John Huss. He was from Bohemia. And uh, he studied at the University of Prague in Czechoslovakia, and he's known for that part of the world. And about a 100 years before Martin Luther, he too tried to establish a reform again to the church so that it might be gospel-focused. John Hus was quite a brave man. He eventually was burned at the stake. When Martin Luther came along, What is interesting is that his reform succeeded. Now, it succeeded for two or three reasons. One is that he had political protection. Make no mistake, the Lord uses many and various things. He was protected by the princes of Germany. And the second thing is that the social conditions now were right. They were right. You could now, for instance, begin to mass-produce literature and pass it out. And so Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, was provoked on one occasion when a man by the name of Tetzel, a priest, began to enter into the area in which Luther and the Saxons lived, and he began to was there on a mission from Rome to sell indulgences. Now, an indulgence is, if you will, a promise that if you contribute, and St. Peter's was being built at this time, that if you contribute to St. Peter's, that this is a good act, a good deed, and it will shorten the time that your loved ones have to spend in purgatory. Now, what is purgatory? Well, it is a kind of a mud room to heaven. If you make purgatory, that's pretty good. It's, it's, it's where you get all the mud burned off of you, all the sins and things so that you can enter in to heaven, which is a holy place. But you had various lengths of time you had to spend there, and you could shorten your loved one's time in purgatory if you contributed as a matter of fact, Tetzel had a little jingle that once, and I don't know it in German, if the coin hits the coffin, from the, a soul from purgatory flies into heaven. This provoked Martin Luther. He thought it was merchandising and the selling of the gospel. And so he walked down to the church door. He was a professor in the newly established church. University in Wittenberg, and whether he nailed these things on the thing, or I don't know how he posted them, but everybody says he nailed them there. Maybe he did, or maybe there was a hook that he attached them. I don't know. 95 theses that he wanted to argue with scholars. It was not meant for the lay person at all. It was meant to to argue some of these points and practices of the church that he believed stood in the way of a clear presentation of the gospel. But it so happened, this was published abroad, and the first thing you know, he became quite a celebrity and became the focal point of another reform in a long line of reforms to reform the church. But his succeeded, and so in the 16th century, this reform movement was so grand and and deep and profound that it changed the course of history. It no doubt in a larger context was part of the Renaissance movement from the 13th century but all of that sweep of history helped this to succeed. Luther had two questions on his mind and he was a very sharp theological thinker. Luther was quite a man. Uh, He had a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses. He was quite profane. Some of you would be shocked to read some of his uh, ordinary writings. At the same time, though, he was very profound. He was a gifted musician. He loved to sing. And a linguist second to none. He was was, uh, able to learn a language in short order. But he was also a profound thinker in the Augustinian tradition. And if you want to boil the Reformation down to Down to what its essence is, you can boil it down to two questions. The first question is that I'm not going to address today is this Where can I find a gospel preaching church? Where can I find a church that preaches the Word of God? It was that simple. Now, there were many churches, of course, that preached the word of God. But there were many that were totally interested in merchandising the faith. He wanted clarity on this point. The whole reason for being for the church is that it possessed a treasure called the gospel. And that's its true riches. And that's its true power. It rests in the gospel. If you look at Romans chapter three, Luther was reading these passages and also passages from the Psalms. But before you get to chapter three, you find in chapter one that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is good news. It's a message from another world, if you will. It is of divine revelation. And Luther really wanted the church to focus upon the gospel. That's its only reason for existence. The second question, though, is this, and this is the subject of my sermon. The second question that entered in this man's mind, and he was able to, if you will, condense these questions into very short way of understanding them what 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 lay fallow if you will in the hearts and minds of many people luther was able to condense into very short understandable statements or questions and the second question was very simply this how can a sinner be justified before a holy god How can a sinner be justified before a holy God? No one questioned in Luther's time that human beings were sinful. Look at all of the artwork in the Middle Ages. You can go into the great churches and you will see uh, the beautiful artwork. and, And much of it is, for instance, pictures of hell and sinners in hell being pitchforked, if you will, by devils and demons. Everyone was aware that there was a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. You didn't have to convince them that there was the idea of judgment. They knew that all too well. The question was, how, how, how can you escape the judgment of God, if you will? How can you escape the wrath of God, which is rightly poured out upon sinners? No one questioned that worldview. You would have a hard sell of that kind of notion today in many quarters, wouldn't you? That's the world that was, it's passed away. We're the new and the enlightened people. But if God is the same yesterday and today forever, we still have the same needs, don't we? So Luther's question is important. How can a sinner be justified before a holy God? This all came, if you will, uh, came together in one man's psyche. He had struggled himself. He had beaten himself. He had whipped himself. He had punished himself in the monastery trying to, if you will, do away with his sinful nature, to conquer it, to live above it, to live beyond it, if you will, and he was unable to do so. Finally, a wise old priest directed him to the scriptures. And he began to read the Psalms. And what he found in the Psalms was a lot more mercy than he was hearing in everyday preaching. And then he finally made a study since he was a New Testament scholar of the book of Romans and he went through it. And this passage here among others was quite, quite impressive to him. He began to read this, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He had been reading those passages with blinders on. He had been reading this passage like this with blinders on. He had been reading it with the commentary, if you will, in the margins or at the bottom. You know, like you have in the Schofield Reference Bible. So everything that he read, he read through those notes. Accepted teaching. But all of a sudden he began to read these things with fresh eyes. And then as he studied church history, he began to go back and he looked at St. Augustine. And he says, you know, Augustine believed that you're saved by grace through faith. He went back even further and he studied St. Paul. And here he is studying this apostle. And he realized that the gospel is a very simple message. Though it is a costly message. What did he come to realize? Well, he knew the problem quite well. How can a person ever be justified before a holy God? God is utterly holy. God would be just and right, Luther thought, to have condemned the whole world when the world left him or walked out or fell away from his goodness and his grace. And yet God continued to allow things to go on. And so the question is, how is a sinner justified? The church said simply, you are justified through faith and works. You are justified through faith and works. Now, let me see if I can explain this. this, this, this there is a nuance. If you read the Catholic Encyclopedia, it's, it's a very good article on this. There was no difference that you're saved by grace. The church always believed that you were saved by grace, the grace of God. If anyone were to go to heaven, it would be due to the grace of God. But they also added that grace enables you to do good works which earn merit. Moreover, the church taught that there have been saintly people who live godly lives. And in that line, by the way, was St. Francis. That a treasury of merit was being built up, that that could be yours as well. And so there was a kind of hope through the merits of others. Moreover, particularly in the high Middle Ages, Mary became especially meritorious. After all, she bore the Lord Jesus Christ, and she rightly could be called Theotokos, Mother of God. There's nothing wrong with that label. For indeed, when she gave birth to the flesh of Jesus, she gave birth to the whole Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and she rightly could be called the Mother of God, or as the Greeks say, Theotokos, bearer of God. She was especially considered sanctified. In fact, it had begun to be built up in the church that she too had a miraculous birth. In her birth, she was born without sin, it was held back. She was a pure virgin. Even when Luther, at 17 years of age, was struck down by lightning, he cried out to St. Anne to save him, the mother of Mary. So this was quite prominent in the minds and hearts of people. How can a person be justified? But Luther began to think profound and deep thoughts. Well, wait a minute. Did not Mary call her son her savior? She may be blessed among all women, and she is. In one sense, she is the first of all human beings. But she is still on our side of the divide. She too needs a Savior. And she was to bear a son. And Luther began to focus solely upon Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he began to understand a passage that I read to you. But now the righteousness of God, uh, there is a righteousness of God apart from the law. It has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's that's all there is. Not through faith in Jesus Christ and the saints, not even Mary. Now, we are to commend the saints. Make no mistake about it. I read church history with great relish and see what some of the great saints... I have a great admiration for Thomas Aquinas. I have a great admiration for St. Anselm. I have a great admiration for John of Damascus. I have a great admiration for many of the figures that we study in church history, for their learning and for their dedicated and sanctified lives. I have a great reverence, and I usually preach a sermon once a year on Mary, for she is blessed among all women. She's blessed among all human beings. God chose her for a special purpose. But that's not what the Scripture says, is it? It says here, this righteousness comes from God through Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ that we are to focus upon. And so Luther began to understand, and he had an adult conversion, if you will, a great flood of peace filled his heart and his life when we began to realize that it was through Jesus Christ that we are saved. Moreover, he began to understand, as Saint Anselm understood before him and Saint Augustine before him, that this Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man, came into this world and lived in our world and finally was crucified on a cross. What was that all about? Luther says, it was he who paid for our sins entirely and wholly. Yes, we are saved by the merits of another. But it's not from this so-called treasury of merit. It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we are saved. My Christian friend, that is wonderfully, wonderfully put in the scriptures. And it is wonderful news for every poor sinner who needs the peace of God. We are saved through Jesus Christ. I read the passage to you in John's gospel. And in that gospel... He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. You get to heaven not on the coattails of any person born of woman on this side of the divide except for one, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is unique. So Luther began to understand that the church needs once again to be re-centered. You know, every once in a while things need to be re-centered. a wheel gets out of round you have to you have to recenter it lots of things need to be recentered and so he his message was that the church needed to recenter itself upon the gospel of Jesus Christ he even called the gospel the great treasure of the church now luther uh, is a very large personality in lutheran tradition I went to a Lutheran seminary for a while and if you go to Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, it's a very large uh, campus for a seminary with German Gothic buildings all around. It's absolutely a gorgeous campus. There must be five or six pipe organs on campus in various places and chapels. Uh, It has a magnificent tower in the midst just across the way from Washington University and as you go into one entrance, you see, oh, I'm going to guess about a 25, maybe 20-foot 20 statue of Luther. There he looms, book in his hand, in his uh, teaching robes, just like I have on, standing there, a professor with the Bible in his hand, looking out. Martin Luther, too, though, knew that he needed the Savior. And he fell upon his knees and cried out to God and had a flood of peace upon his heart and mind that stayed him through the hard times of life. So he knew that salvation was through Jesus Christ. But let me talk about something else, through faith. Isn't that what the text says? Look at it again. This righteousness, if I have any righteousness, it is Christ's righteousness that accrues to me. But it comes through faith. Now let's talk a moment for faith. Faith, what is faith? Well, every human being has faith of some sort. You have faith every morning you get up to put your foot in front of the other to do something for that day. You have faith that if you go to work and do your job that you'll get a paycheck. You have faith probably in your family. If, if, you're, if you're kind to your family members, they're likely to be kind back to you. You have faith in lots of things. You have faith in science. Almost no one would mistrust the law that what goes up must come down. Our life depends upon that rule, doesn't it? And if you were to throw a football in the air, and this is football season, it never came down, you couldn't finish the game. If every time you tried to throw a pass, it just went, never came down. You'd have to give up the game of football, wouldn't you? So you trust science. You trust medicine, don't you? We trust medicine. It's a kind of science. Uh, Medicine and physicians are not perfect, but we trust them. What Luther understood was, that we need to trust Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at what faith is for a moment. Faith is an attitude that you have. You trust lots of things. You trust a person. What Luther understood was that we need to learn to trust Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to take us to heaven. This is the gospel. I need to trust Jesus Christ for my life. I can't trust myself because I can't live good enough life. I can't trust my neighbor even at times. They, they, they fail me. I go back and read the lives of the saints, and I do, and I, I look at them, and I see sometimes they had egregious faults. I'm going to shock some of you, but I would not want Jonathan Edwards as my pastor. He was a great theologian, but I would be scared to death to have him as my... He was very censorious. But a great man. A great man. Uh, No better philosopher theologian in the history of America. But he was pretty tough on the parishioner. Because he was pretty tough on himself. He demanded a lot. He was a man of genius. Oliver Cromwell once said, and the portrait painter came in to paint him and uh, began to sketch him and said, Oliver, how shall uh, I sketch you or paint you? And he says, Paint me warts and all. Everyone has warts. Except one. The impeccable, sinless Jesus Christ. Who came into the world to seek and to save the lost and to die on the cross. For you and for me. That's who you can trust. When John Calvin began to define what faith is, he says faith is not only believing in Jesus Christ, but faith is believing that He is good toward you. Now, I find some Christians have a difficult time believing that God in Jesus Christ is good toward them, that His hand of benevolence is open to you. A Christian has every reason to have a positive outlook on life. We have a storm coming. I don't know how much damage it's going to cause if you listen to some of the, of the, of the newscasters. I'm going to find a cave somewhere and dig in. <laughs> but bad things happen. Think of that horrible volcano tsunami in Japan. We had one of our young men who attends church here from time to time over there working During that time, he said it was a tremendous. He was in, in Tokyo at the time. The buildings were shaking like crazy. But regardless of what happens in life, the Christian understands. That God is for them in Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. God loves you. He is for you in Jesus Christ. I love that passage in Romans chapter 8. If God be for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up freely for us all. This is the gospel and this is what Luther understood. Now you say, did he do away with good works? Not at all. All the reformers understood that good works were necessary in life not to save you. But they knew that faith and true trust in Jesus Christ would change your heart and life and good works would follow. Do you know where the most benevolent organizations on the face of the earth happen to reside? In those countries where the Reformation touched. Think about it for a moment. Western Europe and America... Where does the world go to when a disaster happens? I tell you, faith in Jesus Christ has probably produced more acts of mercy in his blessed name than we can imagine or think. Let Let me close simply with this. The gospel of Jesus Christ changed one heart in the 16th century. And that one heart changed a century. And that century changed the modern world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is able to transform wherever it goes. And that's why we need to be a missionary church. And that's why we need to be a church that reaches out. We have good news for our neighbor and we have good news for the world. And it's very simply this. I was reading a, a, some philosophers recently, about 20 of them who were Christians. Some of them very, very famous philosophers. I didn't know some of them were Christians. But I was reading through the list of philosophers. I didn't read them all, just catching thing. And I, they were asked one question, Reduce Christianity to a sentence. And I forget the name of the woman who's a philosopher. I I, I can't remember now her name. And here's what she said, and she hit the nail on the head. This is the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Can you beat that? That's the Bible. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You are called to trust that. Praise be to God for the Reformation. Amen.